Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. to be here father thank you for everyone lord that's tuning in lord thank you for those lord who will be watching the sermon in the week or listening to the sermon in the week lord but thank you lord that there's still a unity in the spirit father still a togetherness lord and i pray father that as a church we would be quick lord to reach out lord for help and to help in this time lord and also just to know lord that every single time that we have a need that we want someone to assist us to help us to give towards a needy situation, Lord, and we keep silent. We are withholding an opportunity for the church to be the church. So let's pray for that boldness, Lord, for everyone that is in need, Lord, to reach out, and for everyone that can assist, to assist in this time, Lord. Thank you, Father, for a body of believers that surrounds us. And we know that we're not going through this alone, Lord. And thank you that you are present with us, Father. And thank you, Lord, that we still say as a church that we want to do what you've called us to do, Lord, to make disciples of the nations in this time, and to do the best with what we have in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title for tonight's sermon is The Gospel to the Traditional Christian. Or like we said this morning, The Gospel to the Traditional Afrikaner. Now the main South African people, um, not most of them actually are quite a small population when you look at the population today. But the gospel to the traditional Christian, and what I mean by traditional Christian, just to give us a bit of a background as to whom we will be addressing tonight, important for us, in the context where we live, to understand how to represent the gospel to these people the way we should. Very important for us to note, very important for us to carry that out. And we have to, to realize that there's a concept, you know, and I think a lot of us in the church um, and in the culture just that we live in, might be your friends, your family, the people that you work with, you can relate to the phrase traditional Christians, you know, in, in, in that science. Traditional Christians. I was a traditional Christian growing up. I was raised in a traditional Christian home, but I did not know God. I said I was a Christian. I said I believed in God, but I didn't really come to salvation. I didn't really believe. There's no real fruit that came through my life. And just to explain to you guys that this is a biblical concept and we see that. And I know it's difficult for us to acknowledge. You know, and we want to say now, but you know, who are we to cast judgment on people? Or who are we to say that, you know, that, that the fact that they say they believe, they don't really believe. But we see this right throughout scripture and Jesus addressing the problem as well. Now Jesus says to the people in Matthew 7, many will come and say to me, Lord, Lord. But I will say to them, go away. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you, but they will come professing, Lord, Lord. But Jesus will say, I didn't know you. Many will come. So in a sense, there's many traditional Christians, and there have been throughout the ages. It's not a new thing. Even with the traditional Jewish people in Jesus' day, the Israelites, when Jesus addressed them and he says, the Son will set you free. The truth will set you free. And they say, how can you say the truth will set us free? We've never been slaves. We are children of Abraham. And Jesus says, if you were children of Abraham, you would have listened to my words, but you are children of your father, the devil. That is why you seek to kill me. That is why the sin in your life will lead to the crucifixion of Christ. Same with John the Baptist. 
The Israelite nation coming out to people that say they worship God. And what does John say? He says to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You acknowledge something with your lips, but there's no fruit in your life. And we're going to address that today as well. You know, two weeks back, I told you the story of me asking a, a friend a while back. And asking him the question, you know, would you say that you are Christian? Without hesitation, no doubt, immediately answered yes. Yes, I am a Christian. And then I asked him, but would you say that you are a disciple? And he thought about the question for a while and he answered no. Now he wouldn't say he's a disciple. Like we said, you know, as if there's some kind of gospel that can save but does not sanctify. That is not the gospel. In Acts 11:26, it says in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. These Christ-like ones, these people who think and act and speak like Jesus. And so there's four primarily things that we need to understand when it comes to the message of the gospel, the doctrine of the gospel, and when we are to proclaim the gospel to the nations. Whenever we want to, as a, as a church, represent the gospel, or preach the gospel, or teach the gospel to someone rightly, there's four main areas that we have to understand and convey to these people. And these are the fine mo uh, four main areas. The first is problem. We have a problem. That is why we need salvation. That is why the gospel message is good news. Because there's a problem of sin. And when we don't understand the problem of sin, the rest doesn't make sense. And then sometimes the traditional Christian, the traditional Afrikaner, we don't understand the problem of sin quite as we should. And we think we are inherently good people, but we'll get to that in a moment. So there's a problem of sin. That is the first point. And secondly, there's the solution of a savior, Jesus Christ coming to die for us. And that part mostly we understand and we comprehend. Jesus came to die for our sins. And that is where the traditional Christians doctrine ends. People sin, Jesus came to save us, so therefore we can go on as we can go on. And we all must be saved. Jesus died for my sin. And I believe that most. So I must be saved. But that is not where the gospel ends. Then there's also response. There needs to be a biblical response to the gospel. God dictates how we should respond to the message of salvation. We can't respond how we want to respond, having the benefits to be saved, but not the will to be sanctified. And then there's effect. When we respond to the gospel as we should, then it has the effect in our lives that it should have. But when we don't respond biblically, then the effect is also not biblically. So we look at those four points, and I want to encourage you guys, most of us come out of a traditional setting as well. We're raised in traditional homes. And Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5, and he says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Examine your fa yourself. Is Christ in you? Has Christ been formed in you? If not, you have failed the test. So when we go through this tonight, let's first allow the truth to do a work in us before it does a work through us. That is the difference between growing mature as a Christian or growing critical as a person. The ability to take the truth, examine it inwardly, to see how this truth applies in my life before I go and proclaim it to the life of those around us. Something that the traditional Christian loves to do. Whenever there's a message, whenever there's a truth being proclaimed, we love to say, People should hear this instead of examining first, but is this true of my life? Has this truth taken root in my own life? So as we go through this and as we look at this, let's first do inward inspection 
before we go proclaim this message to the world out there, but let's equip ourselves to represent the gospel to the traditional people as we should. Because there's no greater hindrance to a relationship with God than the misleading idea that you already have one. How do you explain to someone that they need to be saved when they think they're already? A difficult thing, and we'll see this now. It comes at the response and the effect. That is how you point out, hey, the gospel hasn't have had the effect in your life that it should have had. So let's read together. We're going to read a passage of scripture in Acts 2 verse 14 to 47. It's Peter preaching the first gospel sermon to what in his day represents also a very traditional crowd. People that already say they believe in God. The reason they came together at Jerusalem was for the Feast of Pentecost. They came to worship God. Interesting thing. But they needed to be saved. So let's see what we can learn from the sermon. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male and servant, um, servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness. And the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourself know this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the fangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with, he, with an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you have yourself seen and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, the one who saves and the one who demands obedience. This Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, 
every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord your God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Quite a long piece, but important for us to understand it in its context. It's the first sermon just after Jesus ascended into heaven. And Peter preaching to these traditional people about Jesus being the Christ. And there's one main difference, and that is the fact that the Israelites worshipped Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the same God we worship. But they just had to understand that the promised Messiah, the one who had to come, the Christ, the one who came and saved people from their sin, he came and he was Jesus. And they needed to put their faith in Jesus. The traditional Christian understands the concept of Jesus. You understand that Jesus came 2,000 years back and died on a cross for our sins, that we should be saved. But many times we believe it in the same way that we believe Jan van Riebeek landed in Cape with three ships. We understand that historically that happened. But just because I believe in the story of Jan van Riebeck doesn't mean I place my faith and my hope in him for everything. And many times we believe in Jesus in the same way. So the main difference we have to ask ourselves is, but how do I believe right? You know, interesting thing, uh, a while back I was speaking to a person and uh, sharing the gospel with them. And they asked me the question, but how do I believe right? Isn't that a profound question? How do I believe right? How do I believe biblically? What does that mean to really believe in Jesus, to really put my faith in Jesus? And we'll see that as we go through this sermon tonight. And like I said, we're going to examine those four areas, the problem of sin, the solution of a savior, how we should respond biblically and what effect that has in our life. We're going to skip a little bit over the solution of a savior because we understand that more or less. The the traditional Christian understands it more or less. The average person growing up in South Africa understands the concept that Jesus Christ came, died for my sin, so that if I believe in him, I might be saved. But the question we should answer is, what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to believe? So let's start at the problem of sin. We read here in Acts 2, verse 23, and it says the following. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, there we also have the solution saying that God sent Jesus with a definite plan and the foreknowledge of God that Jesus Christ would come and die for sins. But it also says why. Why was it necessary? What caused it? What was the problem? You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You crucified and killed. You see, Peter makes it very clear who's responsible for the death of Jesus. A very challenging, a very confronting message. 
You crucified the Son of God. You crucified the Savior of the world. And when he said you crucified him, that you, it's us as well, me and you. Our sins led to that, the problem of sin, led to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We all have that inherent problem, the problem of sin. And the funny thing is the traditional Christian and yeah, actually the African traditional religions believe more or less the same view when it comes to the problem of sin. You see, many times we'll hear people say, no, but they're good people. No, but I'm actually a good person. Or someone's going through stuff and, and they're acting in a certain way, but they say, no, they just had a difficult past, but actually they're good people. And we many times have this belief that inherently we are good. We just sin now and then. And we need to be cleansed just a little bit. But of vitamins for sin. But the Bible says, no, no, no. It's not that we are inherently good. It's that we are inherently evil. You know, Jesus makes this by the way statement when he speaks about the Father that's giving the Holy Spirit. He says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? I mean, what a by the way statement isn't that? You who are evil. You see, Wayne Grudem says it beautifully. He says, we, do not, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We have an inherent problem. And what Peter does here is he makes it very clear that who's responsible for the death of Jesus? We are. Our sin is. That is what led to the crucifixion of Christ. Even us sitting here now, struggling with the same things that we struggle with. We are not inherently good. Now the traditional African religions as well, they, they believe that they're inherently good now and then they get stained by sin and they have to do some purification rituals to get clean from that. But the Bible paints a different picture. Listen to what the Bible says in Ephesians 2, speaking about the problem of sin. It says the following, Ephesians 2 from verse 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is the devil, by the way, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, meaning that we were destined to be punished by God. Everyone's born like that until salvation comes. Until we are born again, like John 3 says. Now we read in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that everyone that is in Christ is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away. The new has come. And if that hasn't happened, then you are still dead in your sins. And I know it's a difficult thing for us to acknowledge and even to admit, but think about this. This is what scripture says, it's not me. This is what the word of God says to us. That there was a time in our life that we were led by the enemy. Our sinful desires, our passions. And yes, it might manifest differently, but we were hostile towards God. We were against God. Romans 8 says the very same thing from verse 6. You can go and read it, it's not on the board. But it says the mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind that is set on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And we have to acknowledge that. The problem of sin says that there was a time in our lives that we were actively against God. And there we are sitting, you know, can you acknowledge this? 
There was a time in my life that I was against God. You see, we many times think, no, 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 there's some kind of gray area. But God says, no, if you're not for me, you are against me. If you do not obey, that is disobedience. It's not something else. You don't get disobedience, passivity in obedience. You get obedience and disobedience. That's simply what you get. Either in the will of God or outside the will of God. Either following God or not following God. And it's difficult for us to admit. And like I said, you know, we tend to believe that those people that were addicted to drugs or alcoholism or, you know, busy with violent crimes. Yes, I understand that maybe the devil has some kind of foothold on them. But I was a good person. No. Your sin manifests differently. You know what the greatest sin in this world is? It's not giving God the glory due his name. And we do that every day. It's not giving God the praise that he deserves. It's not obeying Christ because he is king. That is the greatest sin we commit daily. That is the original sin. The knowledge of good and evil. No, we don't simply want to listen to God and obey. We want to decide for ourselves. We want to know what good and evil is. So that we can decide. Not acknowledging God as God. That is the greatest sin that we commit. And every time we disobey, it's acknowledging that Jesus isn't truly king. But we think we are. And we think that that guy struggling with addiction, that's bad. Our scripture says pride is just that bad. God resists the proud. He opposes them. He's actively against them. But he gives grace to the humble. Sin might manifest differently, but we all have the same problem of sin. Jesus explained this to the Pharisee, sitting in his home, and here comes the woman of the night, saying that if Jesus knew who she was, he wouldn't have allowed her to touch him. And Jesus says, you know, there was a man, and he lent money to two guys, 500 to one, 500,000 to another, forgave both debts. Who loves him most? Now the one with the greater debt forgiven. And Jesus says, look at this woman. She loves much because she's been forgiven much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. And Jesus does not say that she has heaps of sin. And the Pharisee little sin. He says no he doesn't understand the weight of his sin. For the wages of sin is death. Your sin. My sin. And every single other person's sin in this world. Caused the death of Jesus Christ. God had to pay. He had to send his son. For you and me to live. For us to be set free from the power of sin. Regardless of how it looked. That is the message of the gospel. You see, and if we don't understand the problem of sin correctly, we don't appreciate the solution of a savior. That Jesus came and laid down his life. We don't understand how lost we were. Dead in sin, a dead person can do nothing. And that if in Ephesians first for but God, being rich in mercy, with the great love for which he loved us, made us alive together in Christ. That is beautiful. This is the problem that we have and we have to understand this. And then people say, no, but I believe. John 3, 16, whoever believes will have eternal life. But I believe. But what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to have faith in God? What does it mean to respond to the message of the gospel? How do I respond biblically? Because look what the men ask Peter and the rest of the apostles in verse 37. Read the following, Acts 2 verse 37. Just after Peter preached the sermon, they say, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? 
Brothers, what shall we do? And here we learn the first lesson in the gospel towards the traditional Christian. They have to know that you are representing the message to them. That they have to respond. You see, whenever someone preached the gospel in the New Testament, or whenever a letter or a book was written, the recipient understood that the message is for me. And many times in our culture today, because we don't want to offend people, you know, today says, no, if, if you really love people, you'll, you'll leave them on their own. Because the truth hurts. But the Bible says the truth doesn't hurt. The truth sets you free. Love demands that we speak the truth. But because we're scared of that offense, because we're scared of conflict and confrontation, it's not something that we used to in today's culture. Because of relativism. We love to preach the gospel into the air. For people. You know, you tell someone that you really want to say something to a true a story and you hope that they catch that the story is for them. But you don't make it specific towards them. But whenever we read in the New Testament, a message being given, a book being written, the recipient understood that I need to respond to what's being said, said now. That's the first key that we learn here from Peter. We can't just do it in general. The person have, has to understand you need to respond to what I'm saying now. You need to respond to the call of the gospel. The other day I was speaking to a couple of guys. Speaking about the traditional Christians. That think they're saved but they're not. And I know these people very well. And they fit in the same boat. And the guy asked me. But how do you deal with such a person? And I realized I'm doing the same thing. I'm preaching the gospel into the air. I'm not making it very clear. And I actually asked them. Scripture says in John 3. That you have to be born again. That scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that the old has passed away, the new has come. There is newness of life. When was that day in your life? And they looked at me and says, no, there's been a lot of days. And I say, no, no, this is not something that happens a lot of days. You're only born once. You're born again once. Filled with the spirit. There's newness of life. When did that day happen? And then all of a sudden it was a bit uncomfortable. And I have to say to us, we would like to believe the more that we do it, the less uncomfortable it gets. It's not true. It still is uncomfortable each and every time. But love demands that we speak the truth. I think we can, you know, resonate with that feeling of knowing when you just left someone, an old friend that you visited, a colleague or someone that you just met and spoke to and you, you leave there and you know what you should have said. You know what you should have said. You know that you should have made it direct, but you just couldn't. Love demands that we speak the truth. That is why they prayed in Acts 4. Lord, give us boldness so that we can continue to proclaim your word. Because we're going to do it very directly. People are going to, they're going to respond well, like these group of people, and they're going to respond badly. They're going to stone us sometimes. They're going to beat us sometimes. They're going to chase us away sometimes. But Lord, give us boldness so that we can do what you have called us to do. But we need to make it very specific. And because they knew that the message was addressed at them, they asked, what should we do? The question, how do I respond to the message of the gospel? And what does Peter say? We read here in Acts 2 verse 3, 8. This is how you respond biblically. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sin. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. Peter didn't say, okay, as we're all standing here, everybody please close your eyes and bow your heads. And with no one looking around, I'm going to count to three, then you raise your hand. And then you pray a prayer to invite Jesus into your heart. No, there's no such prayer in the New Testament. 
can simply pray and ask Jesus to come into your heart. That is not the biblical response to the gospel. And with that being said, I'm not saying that, you know, we, we sometimes do that. We give people opportunity to respond to the gospel because we want to teach people to respond when they hear the truth. But if you want to respond biblically to the gospel, it's not invite Jesus into your heart. It's repent of your sin. Lay, lay aside the things that you are busy with and start to follow and obey God. And the first step of obedience is baptism. He's speaking to grown men here. Doesn't matter if you're baptized as a baby. Nowhere in the New Testament does it give a hint of a baby being baptized. Paul doesn't say to them, baptize yourself and from now on also your little children. No. Repent and be baptized. That is how you respond to the gospel. Then it says, and Christ will forgive your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. We read in Acts 5 verse 32. Peter speaking again, proclaiming the gospel. And he says, we are witnesses to these things and the Holy Spirit whom God gives to those who obey him. The Holy Spirit is given to those who want to obey God. Because we read in Romans 8 verse 14 that everyone who is led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Those who don't have the Spirit are not children of God. All who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. That's why he gives them to the ones who obey because the Spirit is there to lead. Now use pouring out the Spirit of God, those who are unwilling to obey. But he says, if you obey these words, if you truly repent, and if you obey and be baptized, you will receive the Holy Spirit, guarantee, because God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey. Obedience is key. That is what true faith in Jesus looks like. You can't say, Lord, I have so much faith in you that I'm going to choose not to obey you. That does not make sense. I do not say, Lord, I trust you with everything in me. I believe you are God, the creator of the universe, the creator of the heavens. You are king and yet not obey. That does not make sense. True faith in God leads to obedience. For the freedom, Jesus has set you free, meaning we want to obey because we know who he is. For the love of Christ compels us. That is how we respond to the message of the gospel. It's nothing new. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24, if you would want to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. What does it mean to take up your cross? It means to be obedient to the point of death. Philippians 2, 8. And Jesus humbled himself to the point of obedience. Obedience unto death, even death on a cross. To take up your cross means we're going to die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that actually was a Christian martyr, got killed for his faith. He says, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him, come and die. Come and die. Lay down your life so that I can make you alive again, so that you can follow me and follow the right passions and pursuits in life. That is how you respond to the gospel. I want to ask us as we here tonight, as you are there at your home, have you repented of your sins? Have you set them aside? And have you obeyed and been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ? If not, do so. That is how you biblically respond to the call of the gospel. Repent of your sins. Lay it aside. Because we like to think, now, but Jesus died for my sins. I can continue in them. But Paul knew that people would reason like that. In the end of Romans 5, the scripture says, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. But then chapter 6 starts with a question. What then shall we say? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. 
How can we who die to sin still live in it? For do you not know that those who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death and were raised to newness of life? And then the end of chapter 6, it says, we are not under the law, but under grace. And then chapter 7 begins, what then shall we say? Shall we continue in sin because we're under grace? By no means. By no means shall we simply continue in sin because we repented of that. We died to sin so that we can live to God. That is how we biblically respond to the call of the gospel. And the traditional Christian should understand this. You cannot have sexual relationships with your boyfriend and your girlfriend and say you believe in God. You need to repent. If you're living together with your boyfriend and your girlfriend and you want to respond to the call of the gospel tonight, the question that you have to ask yourself is where are you going to stay tonight? Because if you repent, then you have to move. That is the call of the gospel. Why? Because Jesus is king. And he will sustain where he sends you. He will make a way. There's a whole community of believers here. This morning we listened to the testimony of someone that's in our church as well. And he got saved with a woman in our town. Inviting him for a, a beer. And they went and sat and they talked about it. And he said to him, listen here, do you know where you are going? And he said, no, he says, you are headed straight to hell. You might think you're a Christian, but you're going to die in your sins and you're going to burn in hell. And he threw him with the beer. But he drove all the way behind him to home. He actually walked home. And the day afterwards, he hit the home. He said, now I realize I'm going to die in my sin. And he repented and he surrendered his life to God. Serving God to this day. And he said, yes, he lost a lot when he repented, but he gained a lot more. The body of Christ. Family. Friends. That will be there for you. But that is how you biblically respond to the call of the gospel. Let me hurry up a little bit. So that is the response to the gospel. So now the question is, if I respond biblically, what is the effect? How does it look biblically when I respond to the gospel? What is the effect of that? And we read here in Acts 2 verse 41 verse 47. Look at how, they, how the effect of the gospel took root in their lives. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And all who believed were together, and had all things in common, unity. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the process to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That is the effect. That is the effect. Submitted to God and His people. Yielded to God, serving His people. That is the effect. I'm not saying that we should sell all our possessions and give to one another. That's how it looked in their context. That's how it worked biblically for them. That is how it looked. But for us, it looks a little bit different. But the heart should be there. We should love one another. We read in 1 John 3 verse 16, it's not on the board. But it says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Let us also lay down our lives for one another. For if you see a brother and sister in need, and you have the world's possessions, but closes your heart towards them, how does the love of God abide in you? Asking that question. If you don't love, if you don't care for the people around you, how does the love of God abide in you? The effect isn't there. So you didn't respond to the gospel as you should have. Otherwise, the love of God would have been there. That same chapter, verse 14, it says, By this we know that we have passed from death to life, that we love 
one another. Romans 8, 14, those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. When the fruit of the Spirit manifests through our lives because we are led by the Spirit of God. Yes, it says in John 1, 14, that all who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. But what does that mean? It means that you are led by the Spirit of God and God gives the Spirit to those who obey. And that is the effect of the gospel in our lives. Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, you will obey my commands. That is the effect. We see it all throughout scripture. Ephesians 2, verse 8, people love it. Now by faith, by faith you have been saved by grace. By grace you have been saved through faith, not as a result of works that no one might boast. It is the free gift of God. For, this is the reason, you were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that you should walk in them. We are not saved because of good works, but we are saved for good works. The inevitable outcome of responding to the gospel as we should is good things flowing through our lives. Because it's God doing a work in us. It's us going and proclaiming the message of the gospel. It's us growing in faith, loving one another, serving the community. Because God has come to lay down his life for us. And we go and we willingly do the same. I'm going to leave us with one verse. John 3, 36. 20 verses after God so loved the world that he sent his son. We read the following. What does it mean to believe? Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Isn't that interesting? John doesn't say, whoever believes in the Son will see life, and whoever disbelieves will not, will not see life. No, 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 no. He says disobedience is disbelief. Disobedience is unbelief. You cannot say that you believe, yet disobey God. Will we disobey every now and again? Yes. Will we fall short? Yes. 1 John 1 verse 8, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. But two chapters later, but whoever makes a practice of sin has neither seen God nor knows God. We cannot intentionally continue in disobedience. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So in closing, we see that four areas that we need to first do introspection with and then go and present to the world out there. Do you correctly understand the problem of sin? We are in desperate need of salvation. You know, some people like the atheists, that's their problem. They don't understand the problem of sin. If you said that they need to be saved, they'll say, why? Are we on a ship that's sinking? Someone holding a gun to my head? No, no. It's a much worse problem. It's a problem of sin in all of our lives but then there's the solution of a savior but how we respond to that is by repenting of our sin and beginning to obey by baptizing ourselves in the name of Jesus receiving the spirit and following the spirit wherever he leads and the effect of that is good things flowing from our life and what we need to do is make it very direct when we proclaim the gospel to traditional Christians and I like to use this example it's as if God said to us listen I'm going to make you go and sell coke you're going to be coke salesmen. But now that there's going to be a group of people, that's the atheists and the other religions, they're going to be actively hostile towards coke. They don't want to drink it. They know that they're not drinking coke. But then there's an interesting group of people, the traditional Christian. He thinks he's drinking coke, but it's actually Pepsi. But he thinks with everything in him that he is busy drinking coke. It doesn't taste the same, doesn't look the same, but he is convinced. 
And we are going to need to them to inspect what is in their hand and show them it's not the same. The labels don't look different. It doesn't taste the same. Pepsi is it by lacking. Coke's the good stuff. Pepsi might seem to be nice, but it's only if you can't get Coke. But we can get Coke. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So I'm going to end off us in prayer. Then we're going to dive into our breakout rooms. And I want to encourage you guys to stay in the breakout rooms and to discuss the point that I'm going to give us just now. But let me pray for us and then we dive into our rooms. Yes, Lord, thank you for your goodness, Father. Thank you for helping us, Lord, to come and save us, Father. As we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Lord. As we were hostile towards you. As we didn't give glory unto you, Lord. As we didn't obey and praise you as we should. And thank you for still having grace, Lord, when we fail today. And we respond, Lord. And we want to say, come and show us the sin in our lives that we might repent of it, Lord. And obey you. And follow you wherever we lead, Lord. And I pray, Lord, for boldness for this church, Father. That as we go out and proclaim the gospel, that we might do it directly, Lord. That people might know that they need to respond to the message that we proclaim. Jesus Christ is Lord. And thank you, Lord, that that is what love does. Love does not keep silent, Lord. Love speaks the truth. Give us that boldness in Jesus' name. Amen.